0: If you uh, have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 7. If if you've been paying close attention as as we've been making our way through the book of Romans, you may uh, wonder why we're in chapter 7. So the uh, last text that we looked at was Romans 6, verses 1 through 14, which uh, leaves the next section, uh, Romans 6, verses 15 to 23. So why are we not... Preaching that and looking at that this morning, well, there, there's a reason, and the reason is I, I preached that text uh, just under a year ago. Uh, before, just before we started the Roman series, we were doing a series on our identity in Christ, and we looked at that text then. And I looked at it again, and I thought there really isn't anything I would change. And so instead of preaching the same sermon to you again that I did about a year ago, um, it would, if you if you're really dying to know uh, what that what I how I covered that, you can go back online. And, and find it, um, and so we're gonna skip that uh, since we just did it, and go right to Romans 7. We'll be looking at verses one through six this morning, and so I invite you to turn there with me if you would, and before we read, I invite you to bow as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on his word this morning. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we come to your word this morning, I pray, O Lord, that you would fill us with your Spirit. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and and ears to hear and and hearts to receive the truths of your Word. Lord, we thank you and and praise you for the joy and the privilege it is to gather in your your house to worship. And I pray now, O Lord, that you would cultivate our hearts, that we might receive the truths of your Word, that they may be planted deep in us, that it might bear fruit of transformation and change and so father we offer ourselves to you and i pray that your holy spirit oh lord would do the work that you would, would would have done in us this morning for our good and for your glory in jesus name we pray amen i invite you to stand if you're able for the reading of god's word So the section that I covered a little uh, less than a year ago, I'll just give you a brief summary before we go into chapter 7. So basically, Paul was saying there that we used to be slaves to sin, and now in Christ we are slaves to righteousness, that we we are called then to offer ourselves as slaves to righteousness uh, that leads to holiness. And that brings us then to chapter 7. Paul says, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law. And it's not an an adulteress if she marries another man. And so, my brothers and sisters, and this, by the way, verse 4 is really the the focus of the text this morning because it kind of says everything, pretty much everything that the text is driving at. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what was to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. You may be seated. Throughout uh, the the history of our nation, uh, some states have have passed some rather strange ordinances and and laws, and some of these laws have since been overturned, but but others still stand sort of buried under pages of legislation that have not been revisited in years. So I thought I'd begin this morning in a little bit of a lighthearted way by sharing with you some of these strange ordinances and laws. So here we go. In Alabama, it is illegal to wear a fake mustache that causes people to laugh in church. In California, it's illegal to set a mousetrap without a hunting license. In Quitman, Georgia, it is illegal for a chicken to cross the road. In Indiana, citizens are not allowed to attend a cinema or theater, or used to be not allowed to attend a cinema or theater or ride in a public streetcar within four hours of eating garlic. Not a bad... Not a bad law. It is illegal to hunt whales in Kansas. (laughs) In Portland, Maine, it's illegal to tickle a woman's chin with a feather duster. In Brainerd, Minnesota, not far from Lori's hometown, it used to be that every man was required by by a city ordinance to grow a beard. In New Jersey, it's illegal for a man to knit during fishing season, which I'm sure... Only leads to a massive influx of men knitting once fishing season ends. In Tulsa, Oklahoma, it's illegal to open a soda bottle without the supervision of a licensed engineer. In Myrtle Creek, Oregon, it's illegal to engage in a boxing match with a kangaroo. In Texas, an anti crime law requires criminals to give their victims at least 24 hours notice and to explain the nature of the crime that they will be committing. In Nicholas County, West Virginia, there was a time when no clergy member was allowed to tell jokes or funny stories from behind the pulpit during the church service. And last, but not least, in our dear state of Wisconsin, it used to be illegal to cross state lines from Minnesota into Wisconsin with a chicken atop your head. (laughs) In our text this morning, Paul turns his attention to the topic of the law. Now, he's been referencing the law throughout the, the letter already. There's been several uh, mentions of the law, but, but here in Romans 7, he kind of gives it more focused attention to this topic of the law. And he lays out the good news that in Christ, we have been released from the crushing burden of the law. But as we will see, this, this freedom from the law is not a freedom to do whatever we want it is a instead of freedom that carries with it a a deep purpose and responsibility and so Paul begins we're going to kind of just walk through like I said verse 4 is kind of the I think the, the the center of this text and so we'll walk through it together Paul begins by establishing the basic principle that in Christ we have died to the law He says, so my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. So he gives a fuller explanation of what this means in verse 6, where he says, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law. And so when Paul says that that we have died to the law, he's saying that we have been released from the, the binding and condemning grip of the law. In the broader context of Romans, it becomes pretty clear that Paul means that we have been delivered from the law as specifically as a means of attaining the righteousness that's needed for salvation. That's really what Paul means when he says we've died to the law. We haven't died to the law in an absolute sense, like like we have nothing to do with the law anymore. He's saying that we have died to the law in the sense that we have been delivered from it as a means of attaining saving righteousness. Saving righteousness can be attained through Christ alone. The law is a dead end as a means to this salvific righteousness. As Paul said back in chapter 3, verse 20, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. So this is what Paul means when he says that we have died to the law. We have been released from the crushing burden of trying to attain the saving righteousness through the law. So again, Paul is not saying that the law has no role to play in the life of believers. He'll, he'll come back to that later, and we'll, we'll see that again later in this, this uh, message. So he's not saying that the, the law has no role at all to play in the life of believers. As John Calvin uh, said, I think very helpfully laid out the three uses of the law. And, and the third use of the law, as Calvin put it, was that it still functions as a guide uh, to show us how God wants us to live. But we are no longer bound to the law as a means of attaining the righteousness that we need to be saved. That is the basic principle that Paul lays out here in Romans 7. And Paul then goes on uh, to show that the, the means uh, by which we, uh, we are this, this release from the law is accomplished is through the death of Christ. He, he says... In verse 4, you died to the law through the body of Christ. And the body of Christ means through his, his bodily death on the cross. We died to the law when the body of Christ was crucified on the cross. It was his death and our union with him in his death that released us from the law. Now to drive this point home, Paul uses the example of marriage. He says, in uh, verses 1 and 2, he says, Do you not know that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? He says, for example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. And so too, Paul says that we have been released from the law through the death of Christ, You see, Paul is drawing on the idea that, that marriage is a legally binding union that is meant to be broken only by death, which is why when a, couple, uh, a married couple makes their vows on their wedding day, if they use the traditional language, they, they will say something like either that, you know, we are bound together uh, for as long as we both shall live or in the uh, other traditional uh, set of language in the vows, till death do us part. And uh, so it is meant to be a binding union broken only by death. And Paul says, just as death releases a woman from the, the bond of marriage to her husband, so the death of Christ releases believers from the bond of marriage to the law. We died to the law through his bodily death on the cross. Peter uses this that same language when he says in his letter, Christ himself bore our sins again in his body his bodily death on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. So the death of Christ accomplished our release from the law. And we might wonder, well, in in what ways, or how did it do that? How does the death of Christ accomplish our release from the law? And there's really two ways that it does that. The first is that, Jesus died as one who lived in in perfect obedience to to all of the demands of the law. To every single demand of the law, he lived in perfect obedience and perfect fulfillment, and then he credited his perfect obedience to us, so so that we who are lawbreakers by nature and lawbreakers in practice would be considered, counted in God's eyes as law fulfillers. As Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, God made him, That is Christ who had no sin. There was no sin in him at all. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become those who have fulfilled perfectly the demands of the law, the the righteousness of God. And Paul will say later on in in Romans, in Romans chapter 8, that what the law was powerless to do and that we could not attain it in our sinful nature, that weakened by the flesh, what the law was powerless to do. He says God did by sending his own son in order that, again, here's that same language, the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Fully fulfilled as if we had accomplished it. That, that's, what, that's the first way in which the death of Christ accomplishes our release from the law. He died as one who perfectly fulfilled all the demands of the law and he then credited that perfect righteousness to us. So we're now released from having to live in perfect obedience to the law in order to be saved. And by the way, I think that's one of the uh, features of Christ's death at the cross. that is often overlooked. We, we know much more about the second one that I'm about to mention, but this one I think we often overlook that he lived in perfect obedience and credited that uh, to us, the second way that the death of Christ uh, accomplished our release from the law is that His death paid the penalty that our lawbreaking deserved. So, if we are under the law, then we, as lawbreakers, must pay the penalty for our lawbreaking, and that penalty, Scripture says, is death—not just physical death, but spiritual death, which means a complete separation from the favor of God. It means the, the unbearable enduring of God's wrath. But for those who believe, Christ took this punishment upon himself. He endured in our place the the curse of God for our law-breaking sin. Which is what Paul says clearly in in Galatians when he says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And And he tells us how this works out in Colossians 2. Where he says that God canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. There's that same language again, that, that you know, the, the crushing burden of the, the penalty that we owed, our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and, he con- and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And so his death in our place released us from the condemning power of the law over us. Now, Paul. On then to say that our release from the law through the death of Christ is for a purpose. And there is both an immediate purpose, which we'll look at first, and then there is an ultimate purpose. So the immediate purpose is that we might belong to Christ. Paul says in verse 4 You died to the law through the body of Christ, and here's the immediate purpose that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. So just as death releases a woman from marriage and makes her free to marry uh, someone else, so the death of Christ releases us from our marriage to the law and, and makes us free to be joined to him. And that's the immediate purpose of our death to the law. It is so that we might belong to Christ. And the contrast that Paul makes here is quite striking, if you, if you think about that. So we go from, we, you know, we're released from the law... Uh, to be, you know, not to be joined to a better system of the law. We're, you know, not released from this set of commandments to be joined to a new set of commandments. We are released from the law. No, instead, to be uh, to enter into a spiritual union with an all glorious, all providing, all satisfying, ever living person. So we go from system to a person, and not just any person, but but the one who is our greatest treasure and and delight. Like many of you, I imagine, I was uh, shoveling snow yesterday. Anybody else out dealing with snow yesterday? Yeah? Uh, I don't know if I anybody can beat this. I heard from somebody this morning that they got 18 inches. Um, anybody got more than 18 inches they had to deal with? 20, they said 20 in nation, I think right. Yeah, 20 inches. I'll, I'll, I'll say 20, because we live right by you guys, and so... Yeah, it felt like 20. So yeah, a lot of snow to deal. So I was out shoveling yesterday, shoveling snow, and I wasn't in the best mood because it's the end of March. I'm ready for spring, ready for the snow to be gone, ready, you know, and... and. Uh, I had lots of things to do, and the last thing that I wanted to be doing was to be shoveling snow at the end of March, especially when it's this wet, heavy kind of snow. And so, uh, so I was out there shoveling and a little bit grumpy about it, and the whole time that I was shoveling, like the entire time I was out there you know, for a few hours, uh, our dog Ruby was out there with me. You know, you know, walking back and forth as I shovel, just just right by my side, right there with me, and, you know, lying down every now and then to get the ice out of her paws and, and, uh, and just, just staying right by my side the whole time. And at one point, I accidentally hit her in the head with my shovel as I was, you know, taking a big scoop of snow and trying to throw it, and I hit her in the head, and even that didn't phase her. She just continues to stay by my side and, and be out there the whole time. And, and after a few hours of this, I, I looked at her, and she's completely covered in snow, and, and I thought to myself, why in the world are you still here? Why, why would you, by choice, be out in the, you know, it's windy, it's cold, it's snowing, it's miserable. You're clearly miserable, you know, taking ice out of your paws. Why are you still here? Why, by choice, you're here instead of being in a nice, warm house where you could be. And, and I knew the answer. And if you've ever had a golden retriever, you know the answer. The answer is because she, she, wanted, she wanted nothing more than simply to be with me. And, and it doesn't matter what the conditions are like, it doesn't matter how miserable it is, the, the, the thing that gives her the most delight and the supreme satisfaction in all the world is simply to be with us, to be in our, to be in our presence. She is supremely happy and, and satisfied no matter what we are doing, just to be there with us. And this is just a pale reflection of the satisfaction that we are meant to find in Christ. That's the thought that I had. It's like, man, if if this is how she feels about me, grumpy old me out shoveling snow, like if I'm that great to her, how much more are, are we to find our delight and our satisfaction in Christ? Which is why Paul was able to say, I consider everything, Everything in this that this world has to offer—everything garbage—he said—compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I will—I'll lose everything if only I will be found in Him. We have been released from the law to enter into a union with the One who is our supreme treasure and satisfaction. And I think sometimes we, we forget that. We, we, we stop seeing Christ as our greatest treasure. We, we, we forget what it is about him that makes him so supremely satisfying. And so we need to keep going back to the Gospels to, to see what he's like, to see what it is about him that is so, that is so great. We, we, you know, to see how he kneels in the upper room to wash his disciples' feet. And to see how he... Humbles himself to serve those who should be serving him. See how his self-giving love drives him to his knees in Gethsemane. See how he surrenders himself to the lashes that our sins deserve. And see how he is spit on and mocked for our transgressions. See how he breathes his last in utter agony and forsakenness for our redemption. As the hymn writer says, he left his father's throne above so free, so infinite his grace and emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? This is the one to whom we belong, the one who loves us with a perfect love, the the one who went to the cross for us the one who died, that we might be his beloved. And that is the immediate purpose of our release from the law through his death, that we might belong to him, that we might be his bride. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on on to reveal the ultimate purpose for our release from the law. And he says, you died, so let's walk through this again to see if we can see it all together. You died to the law, that's the basic principle that we have died to the law. And here's the means, through the body of Christ, through his death on the cross, the immediate purpose is that you might belong to him who was raised from the dead. And then and this is what Paul is driving at, the ultimate purpose, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Now it's important for us to see this part of Paul's theology. I mean, well, and it's, it's, it's easy to get off track, and it's, it'll be important for us from this point on to the, throughout the whole rest of Paul's letter to be clear on this aspect of Paul's theology. Our release from the law is not a license to sin. That we are dead to the law does not mean that we are dead to holy living. That we are under grace does not mean that we are free to do whatever we want. The, the ultimate purpose of our release from the law is that we might bear fruit for God. So we, we don't, this is where we have to get the order right. We don't do good works in order to attain salvation, but we, we're saved in order to do good works. Our, our death to the law and our union with Christ is meant to issue in a fruitful life. Now it might help if you, like, if you want a picture, it might help to to picture it this way. Imagine a narrow road with a deep ditch on either side. Now the, the, the picture doesn't quite do justice. You've got to picture those ditches a little bit deeper, a little bit more imposing, a little bit more uh, threatening and, and harder to get out of. A little, you know, if you fall in this ditch, you're going to get in some wet ankles and that's about it. So, but you get the idea. So here's this road, a narrow road with a deep ditch on either side. And the ditches represent major traps or errors that Paul wants us to avoid. On, on one side of the road is the, is the ditch of legalism or works righteousness. This is the error of doing good works in, in an attempt to attain God's favor. The, Paul speaks against that again and again and again. And those who fall into this ditch of works righteousness or legalism are miserable because they're always living in guilt and shame. Right, so They can never do quite enough. They can never do enough uh, to, to meet that standard of righteousness that God requires, that a holy God requires. And so they're always living under that, that burden, that, that weight, and never being never able to do enough. It's just like Martin Luther before his conversion. That's exactly where Martin Luther was, you know, trying to do all these acts of penance and all these works of righteousness. And no matter what he did, he, he slaved himself and he, and he beat himself, but nothing was ever enough, and he was utterly miserable. Striving for a righteousness that was perpetually beyond his reach. That is the one ditch on the one side of the road. On the other side of the road is the ditch of, we could give it different names, but the ditch of licentiousness, the, the, the ditch of antinomianism, the, the, the ditch of we're just free to do whatever we want. This is the air of having no regard for the law at all, or no regard for, for holiness or the pursuit of righteousness. And those who fall into this ditch may appear to be happy and free, but, but deep down, they are miserable too because they are not living out the fruitful life that God intends. And they misunderstand grace. And they are those, like Paul mentioned earlier, who say that well, since we are saved by grace, let's just go on sinning so that grace may abound. If, if, if you know, our sinning makes grace increase, then, then great, we're free to sin. Let God's grace abound. Now, both of these ditches are deadly errors that result in misery. And the narrow road, the narrow road between those two ditches is the way that Paul describes in Romans, which is the way of embracing our release from the law through union with Christ for the purpose of fruitful living. And so we pursue holiness and a fruitful life, not as a means of attaining favor with God, but in response to the favor that God has shown us in Christ. And so it's not that obedience leads to salvation, it's that salvation leads to obedience. And we, we, we have to get that order right. It may seem like a subtle distinction, but that order makes all the difference. Paul wants us to see that we were made to bear fruit for God. We are made to be fruit-bearing people. And if we're not bearing fruit then we're not living as God intends and and we will miss out on the deep joy and and satisfaction and the fullness that comes through a living relationship with Christ. And if we persist in failing to bear fruit, then we will show ourselves not to be true believers, which is what uh, Jesus was getting at when he said in John 15, I am the true vine and my, my father is the gardener and he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Those who are professing believers, but you, you, you profess to be in Christ, but you're not bearing any fruit, and, it, and that's not the way that we're intended to live. And, and Jesus is saying that you, in so doing, if you persist in doing, you show yourself not to be a true believer. Genuine salvation is evidenced by a life of fruitfulness. And so the ultimate purpose of our release from the law and union with Christ is to bear fruit for God. And if you wonder what that looks like, you just, you, you find examples of it all throughout the pages of scripture. We bear fruit for God by, by making disciples. We bear fruit for God by training our children in the way of the Lord. We bear fruit for God by loving one another and encouraging one another and forgiving one another and doing all the other one another statements that, that is, that you find throughout the New Testament. We bear fruit for God by living out the fruit of the Spirit, by, by practicing joy, by being patient with our kids, by acting in kindness, by cultivating a spirit of gentleness. All of this, uh, every, every time we, we demonstrate, live out the fruit of the Spirit, we are bearing fruit for God. We bear fruit for God by using the gifts that God has given us to build up the body of Christ. And so, we, which... which there's all kinds of ways to do that in the life of the church. We bear fruit for God by teaching Sunday school. We bear fruit for God by, by serving as elders and deacons. We bear fruit for God by, by leading small groups, by, by serving in the ministries of, of cadets and gems and covenant friends and, and, and all these other ways. And this is why we as elders will keep on encouraging members to be involved in the ministries of the church. I mean, we have to understand where we're coming from. It's not that we're, we're, we're not just trying to recruit members to keep this enterprise going. We're not just looking for, for bodies to, to keep running our programs. That's, that's, that's not what we're doing. It's that we want people to be what God made them to be. We want people to thrive by bearing fruit for God. And one of the best ways to do that is to use the gifts that God has given you in service of the church. Which then begs the question this morning, are you bearing fruit for God? Are you living a fruitful life? Paul assures us that if we have been united to Christ in true faith, that we, we have been given the power to lead a fruitful life. This is the beautiful thing. Paul says, in verse 6, that by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. And so what Paul is saying is that we have been given, sort of, if you think of a, of a car with, without an engine, a car you have to just push around the neighborhood or push, to, push into town to go run your errands and get your groceries. I mean, that's, you're not going to get very far doing that. But if the car has an engine, well, they can do all kinds of stuff. And Paul is saying that we've been given the engine. We've been given the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us, empowering us to bear fruit for God. And this is the fulfillment of the new covenant promise that God had given uh, to Jeremiah, the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And, and, and again, we got I think this is something that's so beautiful about the, how the Old Testament points to the new. So all throughout the Old Testament, we, get, we come to the stage of of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. By this point in Israel's history, they are they have perpetually, again and again, they've gone through this cycle in their relationship with God, where they continually break covenant with Him. God has come to them again and again, drawn them to himself, entered into covenant with them, proven himself to be faithful. When they wander away, he draws them back, and that's gone back and forth again and again and again. They wander, God draws them. They wander, God draws them. He keeps making covenant with them. He is ever and always the uh, covenant-keeping God, and they are ever and always the covenant-breaking people. This has gone on. This pattern has gone on again and again throughout the Old Testament. So finally, we get to Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and the people of God are in exile at the Babylon because of their covenant-breaking ways. And God says, I am going to do something new. This, This pattern has gone on and on. It's time to make my promise to do something new. And the new thing is not going to be a new set of commands, these external things to follow. The new thing is, I'm going to give them a new heart. Because the problem is, the reason we're stuck in the cycle is because their hearts are not right. Their hearts have not been changed. I am going to make, give them obedience from the inside out. That was the promise of the new covenant. Was a, it was a heart matter. And so uh, God had said, for example, to the people of Judah through the prophet Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. We see what God had promised through the prophet's has now been fulfilled in Christ. This is what, what Paul says here in, Rome, in Romans 7, is the fulfillment of what was promised in the new covenant. Through our union with Christ, God puts the Holy Spirit in us and moves us to follow his decrees and to keep his laws. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live a fruitful life. This is, this is Paul's picture of the Christian life. It is bearing fruit for God, Bearing fruit for God as we serve the risen Christ in the power of the Spirit. Everything has been put in place for us to be fruitful Christians. Our freedom from the law is not a freedom from obedience. It is a freedom to live in obedience from the inside out by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And so friends, find those ways that God has gifted you and equipped you and then offer those gifts to God, which ties into what Paul was saying in Romans 6, verses 15 to 23, offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness that leads to holy living. Find those ways that God has gifted you because if you are part of the body of Christ, if you have faith in Christ, you have been gifted. God has given each one of us a gift to be used In the service of the church for his glory. So find those gifts and offer those gifts to God. Don't hold back. Don't wait for a different season in life. Don't assume that somebody else will do what God has gifted you to do. Give yourself to God and let the Holy Spirit work through your gifts to bear abundant fruit. As Paul will say later on in Romans uh, chapter 12. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. And he says if your gift is prophesying then prophesy. If it is serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, then, then do it diligently. And if it's to show mercy, do it, do it cheerfully. And what, what Paul is saying, the point he's making is, is find out the gifts that God has given you and then, and then do them. Put them into practice in the life of the church. Discover the joy of living how God made you to live by bearing fruit for God and the power of God of the Holy Spirit. There are few things, I almost hate to show you this image of this after getting a whole dumping of snow, but there are a few things more beautiful than fruit-bearing trees. This is one of my favorite things about spring is to see the, the crabapple trees bursting into bloom all over I think it's, just, it's It's so beautiful. A tree that is Thriving and bearing all kinds of fruit, like this apple tree, is a healthy tree. It's a, it's a beautiful tree, a tree that's, just, that's full of life and, and full of vigor as it fulfills its purpose. And, and the picture that Paul paints is that, that Paul says that as followers of Christ, we were made to live that kind of life a life that is thriving and fruitful as we are joined to Christ and led by the Spirit. So let us offer ourselves to God that we may bear fruit for our good and for his glory. Let's bow together. Lord God, as we come before your throne in this time of silent prayer and response, I pray, O Lord, that you would show us the ways that you have gifted us the ways that you have called us to bear fruit for you in your kingdom. I pray, O Lord, that we would see the beauty of how we've been released from the law through the death of Christ, that we might be joined to him as as his bride, and that we are now filled with the Spirit to be able to bear fruit for our good and for your glory. O Lord, show us the ways that we can do that, and I pray that you would forgive us for the ways that we have neglected to do so. Lord, hear our silent prayers. And the Lord, as the psalmist said, blessed is the one who does not walk in the way of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But blessed is the one whose delight is in the word of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That one, O Lord, is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Lord, may we surrender to you that your spirit may so reign and dwell in us that we are like that tree, bearing fruit for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.